Good evening, guys. Good evening, and welcome to episode 11 of the Purple Sector podcast, and it's the last of our current series. And for this episode, we have got an Olympic medalist of 1992, the only British boxer to take home a medal from that Olympics. He was also the WBC, the WBF, and the IBO world champion. Gave Joe Calzaghe one of his toughest ever tests. It is the Reaper Man, Robin Reed. Robin, how's things? Uh, minute, yeah, I mean, you know, with the current situation, I'm not going too bad considering. But yeah, things are good. Things are good, thanks. No, that's very, nice very good to hear. Keeping busy? Nice introduction, by the way. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> very good indeed. So, Robin, we'll fire away. Uh, we're going to go through a little bit through um, your, your career, amateur and, and pro. Um, you were born in Merseyside, Robin, on the 11th of, uh, sorry, the 19th of February, 1971. You lived with an adoptive family for the age of two onwards. Um, always an obvious first question this, but um, who or what inspired you to go into the boxing gym for the very first time? Well, it was, I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard was my, uh, Sugar Ray Leonard was my hero uh, back in the day. Yeah. I mean, I, I, how I got into boxing was, uh, I used to get bullied a bit as well, not quite a lot at school to be honest, junior school and uh, senior school. Um, so I was getting into quite a lot of fights and things, not, not, not by choice. I mean, it was more yeah. of a case of defending myself. It was always the, the, the older lads that picked on me because I was the only mixed race kid in our, in our junior school and yeah. senior school. I caught for it quite a bit. But my dad, at the age of eight, um, my dad used to watch a lot of boxing. My, my foster dad, on, uh, I think it was um, Tuesday, off. I can't remember if it was Tuesday Fight Night Live. I think yeah, 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 yeah. And um, World of Sports uh, on, on Saturday afternoons, my dad used to watch the boxing, and that's where we used to get, we used to see the American side, which would be like your Tommy Hearn, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler. Uh, and it was that era that I started watching boxing, mainly. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Your middleweights. So, and I remember watching Sugar Ray Leonard, and I just remember thinking, wow, you know, he's a good looking guy, you know, great defense, great attack, you know, uh, confidence that he had. And I think what it was, was I'm watching this guy, and I didn't have a lot of confidence as a kid, obviously because of the bullying and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So I'm on TV, Sugar Ray Leonard, and he looks confident, and everybody respected him and that. And I just remember thinking, Wow, I wish I could be like that, or you know, I wish you know people respect me like that. And so anyway, I, I, my dad took me down to the local box. Well, it wasn't even a boxing gym; it was just a local recreation centre. Yes, and they had boxing. Um, and uh, yeah, so I went down there, and I fitted in. I was made welcome. Uh, you know, everybody was like, they introduced me to uh, they watch your name, the kid, and it was like, my name's Robin, and they're like, well done. They all give me a little round of applause. Welcome to. And, and and I just felt welcomed, Kieran. And yeah, like, yeah. You know, I didn't. I wasn't looking to get into boxing to be a world champion or anything like that. At, the, at that age, it was more so just being accepted. Do you know what I mean? I, I walked yes. into the box. I was. Nobody was bothered with the fact that like I was brought up in foster care. I had, you know, we didn't have bags of money. Uh, I was mixed race. Uh, you know, different color skin or whatnot. Nobody was bothered when I walked in the boxing gym. So I just yes. remember thinking. Wow, this this will do for me. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I feel I feel I feel welcome. I feel comfortable. Happy days, and it just went from there. And obviously, I, I had a bit of a a bit of a talent that led me on to you know a great amateur career and professional career. Absolutely, and harnessing that talent is so important, especially at a young age, giving giving that confidence and 
harnessing that talent, I suppose. And and you touch on your amateur career, and your amateur career was 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 laden with honours, to be honest. Um, in uh, 1990, you went to the World Cup in Bombay. Now, you've spoken to me about this before, this, um, but you made it to the semi-final um, against a Cuban guy called Juan Carlos Limas, um, a fight that was really memorable for you. Um, why was that? Why, why that fight above everything else? Well, I mean, I did actually lose it in that fight. I mean, you know what, well, I don't know, back in the day when you, you tried to avoid the Cubans, the Americans, the Russians, the Eastern Bloc countries, if you could, yeah. you know, you didn't want to be drawing them in your early rounds because it was going to be tough. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was me and Paul Lloyd. There was only two of us in the team. It was the World Cup in Bombay. And there was only two representatives from England. There was me, a light middleweight, and Paul Lloyd, I think, was bantamweight. Um, yeah. So anyway, we've gone over to yeah, um, the draw. draw and we've only drew Cubans in our first fights, haven't we? So anyway, so I just thought, it was one of them. I just thought, you know what? And now that was from Carlo Pima. Won the world championships three times. I mean, he had a he, he had a blistering uh, amateur uh, record. Yeah. Oh, you know the Paralympic Games and this, that, and the other. And he was Cuban. He was the number one Cuban. So anyway, I drew him in the first round. I think it was just one of them. I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just going to go. Everyone's expecting me to lose anyway. I'm just going to go in there and give it the best shot. Yeah. And yeah. that's. And I lost. I did lose the fight, but I think it was nine. Nine five on the point scoring, which wasn't too bad at the time. Yeah. I lost nine, but, but I, to this day, I give him one of the, I give him a hell of a fight. I got, you know, I got him with some good shots and, and yeah. whatnot. And at the end of the fight, uh, the crowd stood and like, you know, uh, give us a round of applause. And it was that good a fight. Yeah. Now a little bit to add to that was he went on to he he was he went on to the Olympic Games in Barcelona. Me, well, you know, the same weight as me, like middleweight, but he was on the other side of the draw. Yes. So I'd have met, I'd have met the Cuban in the final. Um, yes. Cracking fight, but I lost in the semi finals to a Dutch kid called. Um, Delibas. Was it Delibas? Now, Delibas, a good fighter, but he was just one of them trick. He wouldn't have lived to, he wouldn't have lasted two minutes for me as a professional. Yeah. As an amateur. That or you know, back in the day, the Eastern block style, you know, flick, 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 and run away. You know, the point score and run away. Now that's basically what he did in our fight. In the yes. Um, he wouldn't come to fight, um, which I was a bit disappointed about, like because I had to bow out in the semi-finals. You know, I'd rather go out on my shield than what then. But like you say, this this Delhi bass, he just run away for the three and just nicked a few points, and that was it. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. he, yeah, he met the Cuban in the final. Yes. And he bottled it. He bottled it because it was a Cuban, and he made he just run away for three. He settled for silver, mm. and uh, and that was frustrating to watch. He settled for silver. He didn't want to. He he, he, he was scared of the Cuban basically because he was Cuban, and he didn't he didn't engage in a fight with him. He yeah. just run away and win, and he settled for silver. And that was disappointing for me because I just thought if it had been me in the final, whether it would lose a draw, at least a bit of go against that Cuban. Yeah, and anyway, to end that story, a few years, that well, a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was on Facebook, um, a guy contacted me, saying, are you Robin Reed, blah, 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 and I was like, yeah, and it was an Hispanic guy. So anyway, it turns out, it only turns out that it was Juan Carlos Lemus' brother. Right, um, okay. Yeah, he says to me, he says, uh, he says, have you got a copy of the fight? He said, you had a great fight with Juan Carlos in, uh, in the World Cup in Bombay in, 90, in 1990. Uh, have you got a copy of the fight? And I went, I have got one. It's on VHS. I said, but I don't know where it is. Uh. I said, oh, 
he said you could find it could you get get us a copy because Juan Carlos wants to see it. he said because he remembers you he says he rem and he's followed your career since about the Bombay yeah. World Cup in 1990 now as you know Cubans couldn't turn professional back in the day um, you know they had to defect um, I mean obviously you get more Cubans now like going over to America and defecting and uh, you know making careers for themselves but back in the day you didn't get as many Cubans doing that yeah so Juan Carlos Limos would have made I mean he would have gone on to win a world title as a professional but he, he didn't because of the because um, like I say the, uh, the, the communism side of things but like he, like he said he followed my career all through winning the WBC fighting Joe Calzaghe yeah um, a title defense and uh, I just, as much as it sounds, I mean, I fought some great fighters in my pro, pro career, you know, Joe Kalzaki, Carl Froch, Brian McGee, uh, Vincenzo Nardiello, uh, yeah. Hasbifi, Sven Ocker, all them big names that I fought as a professional. Uh, but that did mean a lot to me when, when, when I was contacted on Facebook with a copy <laughs> of Yeah, there's in 1990. And it just touched my heart a little bit. I just thought, wow, you know, the, one of the world's, one of the top Cubans back in the day at my weight, like, like middleweight, he was three times world chair, world amateur champion, and he went on to win the Olympic, the Olympic gold medal at the Barcelona. Medal, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fought him in Barcelona. It's not in Barcelona, sorry, in Bombay, and he still remembers that as being one of his uh, one of his toughest fights. No, that's very good to hear that. Um, I mean, we're going to go back to, to, to the Olympics very briefly. Um, I mean, because you, you were coming off some great form coming into the Olympics. You won the Canada Cup in uh, in 92. Uh, and as I've read it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Olympic selection came down between you and some other fella from Wales. Um, is that how it worked out? No, right? Now, Joe Calzaghe, apparently, I mean, I've not read his book, <laughs> but Joe Calzaghe apparently... Uh, or allegedly, should I say, he makes a statement in his book, allegedly, um, that I took his place at the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. That's not the case, right? Mm -hmm. That's not, he knows that. It's not true. I qualified my position at light middleweight at the Barcelona Olympic Games, yeah? It was a qualifying, so you could qualify through, I think it was the World Championships, the European Championships, yeah. and a separate tournament at light middleweight was in Italy. Right now, Joe Calzaghe could have gone to the qualifying tournament in Wales. Uh, Wales could have had their representative. They didn't send anybody. Oh no, they did send somebody. Tell a lie. I can't remember what his name was. Uh, at light middleweight uh, from Wales, did a boxing. Oh, it was an Irish kid I boxed. I think in the first round. But Wales could have. Wales did have somebody in the in the team. I think I yeah. can't remember what. Wales did. So a representative. So Joe Calzaghe, being the ABA champion, uh, at light, could have gone. Or could have could have gone to the Olympic qualifying tournament, but he didn't go. And Joe Calzaghe, I don't know what his international records like. I mean, if you look, I can't remember exactly what mine's like. But if you check my international record, it's got two golds, three bronze. It was including the Olympic bronze medal at Barcelona yeah. Olympic, silver medal at the World Amateur Championships in Puerto Rico, 1989. So I've got like you know quite established amateur record. I if you look at my amateur record. You can see I've identified my place at the Barcelona Olympic Games. Absolutely. Four bronze, a world silver medalist, and I've represented England on several other occasions on home internationals that I've won. Now, I don't know exactly how many, but I had a 
40 internationals, uh, you know, someone will probably correct me. I had about 40 internationals and I won 30 of them or there or thereabouts. Now, that's not a bad international record. But what I'm saying is, I qualified myself for that Olympic, uh, Olympic spot. Joe Calzaghi didn't go to any of the qualifying tournaments. I never met him at the Canada Cup. He could have gone on weight, the Canada Cup, uh, the Tama tournament in Finland where I won gold and also got best boxer in the tournament. Canada Cup, I got gold and won best boxer in the tournament on that occasion as well. There was the Olympic qualifying tournament in Italy. I won bronze and qualified myself yeah. for the Olympics at light middleweight. Joe Carlson wasn't at any of them tournaments. So where I don't know where he gets. I took his from. I don't know where he gets. <laughs> That's you know, a bit bitter, really. But he had every opportunity to do what I did, but he didn't do it. He never yeah. went to one qualifying tournament. He never went. I never seen him on the circuit on the international circuit in all my international career. I never seen him on the international circuit for Wales at any at any point. Well, we would have boxed, wouldn't we? We would have yeah. met. The boxed with a cross, certainly. Yeah. Exactly, and it never happened. So he's telling that. He, that sounds like he's a little bit bitter to me that I went to the Olympics. He didn't, but that's pure. That's not down to me. That's because he never went to any tournaments that could have qualified yeah. him. So what that's about, I do not know. You know, so that's where it all started. The rivalry <laughs> back in the <DC>, so. <laughs> Well, it was a rivalry well, seven years in the making because uh, you met in 1999. But um, you moved to the pros uh, pretty soon after 1992, and you linked up with um, Brian Hughes, I think, for the first time. Now. Um, what was the main difference you found between the pros and the amateurs in terms of the preparation, um, in terms of the fights themselves? What, what were the main differences you found? Uh, I mean, to be honest, the, the training was, I mean, the training, I was, I was used to doing hard training, anyway, you know, with the, you know, being in part of the Olympic squad. I mean, the, the build-up for the Olympic Games was four months, which was a week on the Crystal Palace, which was the National Training Centre at the time. I know it's in Sheffield now, but back in the day, it was a Crystal Palace. So yes. to do a um, training the full squad and then we a week at home uh, but we'd be given a program to stick to then a week back at crystal palace and that went on for three months i think it was so the training and that you're talking like you know i don't know if you spoke to carl Froch or other professional fighters that have had great amateur careers um you know and and, and, and some of the like the training that we did was like you know for the amateurs like you're training five six seven times a day sometimes you know, from seven in the morning. I mean, you're getting your breaks, your breakfast, your, your dinner, and your evening, uh, your evening breaks. But in between, you're doing like sparring sessions, bag sessions. That's all day long, two runs a day. So I was used to that hard training. Anyway, when I turned professional, obviously yeah. the main difference is being you have to settle down a little bit more. Um, you know, settle down on your shots a little bit more. Because if you're a puncher, and I was a bit of a puncher as well as an amateur. I mean, I used to bust my hands up somewhere awful as an amateur because you were limited to how bandage you on your hands. Yeah, so my coach, Brian, had always known that I was a bit of a puncher anyway. So the main changes were like basically sitting down on your shots, slowing it down a little bit. Like you're still looking for points, don't get me wrong, but you're looking for the, you know, the, the more powerful, uh, yeah. the, the, the bigger yeah. um, That was probably the main, the, the main difference. No, no, the obvious difference is being no head guard, and no vest, uh, maybe I'll have to shine your skin up when you're walking out. But um, <laughs> yeah, differences are there. I settled into the pro game quite well, to be honest, because a lot of people, a lot of amateur coaches used to say, like, you know, I had a good, you know, I, although I had a good amateur style, 
he said they could see the pro style in my style anyway. So I adapted quite, you know, quite well, to be honest. Absolutely. And um, correct me if I'm wrong as well, but I mean, um, you, you had a very good start to the pros. You were really sort of going through them month after month in, in, in your early career. And uh, you went on a run of 21 victories um, early in your pro career. But your 22nd fight. Now, I mean, this was a bit of a bolt from the blue um, when it came upon you. But uh, the title shot came about with uh, Vincenzo Nardiello, and it was the, for the WBC World Championship. Now, of course, that had a very uh, changeable recent history with Nigel Benn and, and going through uh, Nardiello, etc. Um, how did you get that shot, and when did you first become aware that you were in line for the WBC title shot? Well... <sighs> What happened was, I mean, like you said, I'd like, you know, uh, I had a good record, 21 fights. Yeah. Uh, 21, well, 21 wins, one draw. And um, that was a bit of a blemish on, on my record to start uh, early on in my career. I had a draw with Danny Juma. He was a tough guy, to be honest. It was only my sixth pro fight. Yes. You know, the thing is, you're expected to knock everybody out when you're on the way up sort of thing. And I remember, I think it was my fourth pro fight. Um, I actually broke my hand in the fight. Um, so I was out for about... For about a year, I had to go and see a specialist at Harley Street, and so on. Yes. it was never the same. I don't know if you can see it, but, you know, it's not the best. Still got to uh, I smashed my hands a bit in my fourth pro fight. I mean, that's another thing, uh, you know, that you never heard me complain about in my, in my boxing career. That Joe Calzaghe was always complaining about bad hands. Yeah, now I had bad hands early on in my career. Like I said, yes. I broke my hand in my fourth fight. I wasn't aware of that until you just told me, to be honest. So, uh, so there, yeah. Thing is. To myself, because at the end of the day, why do I want to tell the world or, or any future opponents or possible opponents that I suffer with bad hands? Yeah, you know, you know, I want to. I wanted to keep that to myself. You didn't hear me making excuses after fights. Oh, I broke my hand. My hand, like I say, I broke it in my fourth pro fight. It was never the same after that fight. Never the same. Even mm -hmm. you know, it. I, it was a case that I had to grin and bear it. I had to. Say, I went and seen a specialist at, at, at Harley Street, and he said, and these were his very words, and I respected him for this. He said, "You checked me hand out." He said, yeah, "You've had a bad fracture of the metacarpal." So anyway, he says to me, he said, "I can sugarcoat it." He said, oh, "I'll tell you the truth. What do you want?" I said, "Well, tell me the truth." <laughs> he said, "Unfortunately," he said, "Your hands in general, like you know, your hands in general were made for gripping." He said, "They're not made for punching as such." He said, unfortunately, in your chosen profession of boxing, which is including a lot of punching, your hands are a bit weak. He said, so it's a case of you either find yourself another career or you just bite, you know, you just bite the bullet and carry on. And that's what I was left with. And I thought, you know, I respected him for, like, you know, for telling me, he could have shown it, oh, you, you know, we could do this or we could do that. Now, he said we could do an operation. He said, you'll be out for another year. He said, yeah. you can't get it. It's not going to happen again after you've know soon as you fight again so he said it's up to you so i thought you know i had to i had to take a long a long i was 20 oh, 20 20 or oh, 22 23 years of age yeah starting off in a professional career and then i'm getting told this do you know what i mean i'm just starting out on my career and i'm getting told this and the options were like i say carry on grin and bear it or pack it in and get myself another career i could have had the art operation but like i say that would have guaranteed that it would have like rectify the sure, sure. So like I say, I can't. Yeah, it was just a case of and like I say, Kieran, after every fight, my hand was like that, swollen. It took the glove. It looked like I still had the glove on after every fight, but I kept it to myself because, like I say, I didn't want to tell the world that I've got a dodgy hand because you tell yeah. future opponents 
what are your weaknesses? So I didn't tell the world. But I suffered like with most fights. Uh, but like I say, sorry, threw, threw it out a bit there. But getting back oh, to okay. what you about. <laughs> Um, I've been I've been mivering Frank, you know, I built up the record. I've been mivering Frank for a British title. Um, I think I was middleweight at the time. So come on, Frank, I'm a world title. You know, I'm sorry, I'm a British title because that's the normal route. Um, you know, title, uh, Commonwealth, British, European, world title. So anyway, gets the phone call. Come yeah. about. Is there a title shot? I'm thinking it's British title. It's a world title. So I'm thinking, Daisy. And he said, well, it's super. He said, you don't have to go middleweight, which I was fine with that anyway. I was doing middleweight. You're only talking about a few pounds anyway. He said, so you're going to have to go to super middle and it's the WBC. So I'm thinking, wow, the WBC. Then I stopped and had a little thought. I thought, I can do it. Who's got the WBC at the minute? It was Nigel Ben, wasn't it? Yes. Exactly. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. I thought, oh my God. Because you know, I'm a big, I'm a fan of Nigel Ben. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've grown up. I have the Ben Eubank, uh, when he fought Ben, uh, the Ben Eubank's um, Judgment Day, uh, the second fight. Yes. Uh, I fought on the undercard. I think if that was one of the early pro fights, I fought yes. on the undercard uh, that show. So he's a bit of a hero of mine, and then I'm getting told you're fighting Nigel Ben. So I thought, oh, <laughs> no, listen, you know, I'm one of them. Me, once I get got my head around the situation, I said, listen, he's only human. Do you know what I mean? Everybody's that everybody can get beat. Do you know what I mean? It's the great Nigel Ben. Don't get me wrong, but listen, go in, do your best, and that, not a case of you'll never know. But go in, do your best, and you could beat this guy. Do you know what I mean? You got to be yeah. confident in something positive. Anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on I've got to fight Nigel Ben now. But Nigel Ben, um, a voluntary, uh, not a voluntary, a mandatory defence against uh, Sugarboy Malinga. Yes. Who everybody expected him to beat, which he didn't do. He lost that fight. Uh, he yes. lost it quite convincingly, actually, um, to Sugarboy Malinga, who then lost in his first defence to um, Vincenzo Nardiello. Oh, yellow, so yeah. I was set to fight Sugarboy Malinga, but he had a mandatory against. Nardiello, so he had to get that out of the way, and they weren't expecting Nardiello to beat him on that one. Yes. Nardiello. So anyway, Frank Warren did, because uh, I was contracted to fight, you know, uh, whoever the winner was. So he says to, he, he talks Vincenzo, you know, I'm not saying he talked him into it, but he says to Vincenzo Nardiello, obviously, like, you know, we've got this young kid, all right, he did all right at the Olympic Games, but he's not done anything since, he's got a good record. Nice, easy defence for you. He's still, you know, he's a big name because of the amateurs and all the rest of it. But that'll be a good scalp on your record. Vincenzo Nardiello signs straight away. I mean, little did he know that like, I was going to come in and do what I did to him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very good reverse psychology. And of course, um, I mean, you, you came into the arena. It was, it, was, it was in Italy. It was very much an away day, wasn't it? Um, I mean, what were your thoughts going into the fight? I mean, um, uh, jump by Van Halen was uh, going in the distance. Um, and you came in against a, a real partisan Italian crowd. But what were your thoughts pre-fight and then obviously during the fight itself? Is, I mean, that was a, 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 one of my, I wouldn't say quality of mine, but I remember some of the, some of the team used to be in tournaments, they'll be a bag of nerves, and they'll be like, why you still, why are 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 you still
greatest as you say to the guys is I used to just I don't know it's but I just try and switch off to the fact of how good the fight is. Mm-hmm. Just try and, I just tell myself it's just another fight, it's just a normal fight, go in there and do your best. So that's what I did with the world title. I know it sounds mad because it's a world title, but basically all I did was just focus, told myself it's just another fight, you can beat this guy. And I, in every fight that I had, I always used to, uh, if there's anything in their, in their record, like for argument's say, you know, they were world champion, I'd say to myself, yeah, but he, he hasn't been to the Olympic Games, this guy, he hasn't won an Olympic bronze medal. Anything I could say to myself, that was positive. That's what I do, just to convince myself, you know, get myself in a positive frame of mind. And that's what I did with Nardiello. I just thought, right, this is a normal fight. You can beat this guy. Forget the crowd, you know. And plus, my amateur career had helped with that. You know, travelling abroad, being up against it. Um, that didn't bother me. I, I, in fact, I, I, I actually used to like being the underdog. I used to prefer being the underdog. Um, so, like I say, gone to the, gone over to Italy. Um, He's the big, you know, he's the big name over there because he's WBC world champion. You know, little old me, he, he was the underdog. Uh, or I, I had the Olympics, you know, the Olympic bronze behind me. But that was it, you know, that was it. You know, I had no perfect. I mean, apart from a record as a professional with 20 wins and one draw, um, I didn't have no titles to take into that fight. So everyone thought it was a, it was a, a foregone conclusion that I was going to get hammered. Uh, you know, obviously, Nadia both thought the same. Um, but I just went in there and I knew I could beat the guy. I just, put, you know, slowly broke him down and took the WBC where World Super Middleweight title off his hands. How fantastic was that feeling as well? Because I know, I know that um, you had a few doubters in the Sky uh, Sky media, didn't you? Um, going up to that fight as well. But yeah. um, you um, you did a body shot with him uh, with about one or two seconds to go, wasn't it, at the to the end of the round? But that was enough. And... Um, you had a special visit from a former world champion straight after, didn't you? Clambered into the ring to congratulate you. That's true. That was Marv, the great Marvin Hagler. Um, I mean, I mean, the thing is, he's like, you know, he got into the ring and he presented me with a boxing glove as part of, you know, winning the WBC. And he said, uh, great fight, that kid. He said, uh, you boxed really well there. He said, I could see you determined. He said, you go on and uh, do great things. And this is the great Marvin Hagler. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, when I'm still in the ring with this, like, legend, Thinking, I didn't even know, you know, he, he was calling me Robin, he knew the name, he followed my career, you know, and it was like, wow, like, you just don't expect people like that to know who you are. Um, so, you know, great words of advice from him, and uh, yeah, you know, I went on the defense, made some uh, several defenses, successful defenses of the WBC. Yeah, you made a defense against uh, another Italian, I think, and then it was Henry Wharton who you defended against, and then it was uh, Hassine Sarifi, but. Um... You were fighting and getting out pretty much once every uh, three months. And was it fair to say that by the time your defence against Sugar Boy Malinga came around, the fourth defence of your title, that you were in a very sort of tired and, and jaded place because of all, all your fights within three months of each other? Yeah, that's true. I mean, at the time, Kieran, I was, I was, I was contracted. Uh, you know, I was contracted, obviously, for Frank Warren. He got me the world title. So, you know, I had to honour that contract. Now... At that age, I think I was 25 years of age. You know, I've just won this world WBC world title. You know, I've gone from there, right up to there. Um, you know, we're training hard. And the thing is, you know, on these big bills with Prince Nazim, Steve Collins, you know, big fighters like that, these three world title bills on Sky TV. You know, and the thing is, you think at the age of 20, you think you can go on forever. Do you know what I mean? You're young, you're fit. Yeah. You know, uh, 
you know, but you're not superhuman at the end of the day. I had, you know, my first defence was against Giovanni Pretorius from South Africa. Uh, great fight with him. You know, we come to fight and, you know, we had a right toe-to-toe when I was alive. You know, I ended up knocking him out in the seventh round. That was a good win for the first defence. Second defence was against, the, you know, uh, great Henry Morton, uh, British Commonwealth, European champion, uh, Henry Morton. He fought the world title against Nigel Benn and Christian Banks. Yes. He just fell short on occasions. Great, G- gave a great account of himself. So I've got him on the third occasion, you know, and, uh, you know, Henry Warren was a sub puncher, you know, so that was a great fight after the 12 rounds. Yes. Then I had my third this was against Hassan Sharifi. Henry uh, Warren was in the May. So but let's take into account, I won the title in October 96, I think it was. Yes. And first defence is in February. Second defence is in May. Third defence was in October against uh, Hassan Sharifi. Sharifi, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, so I, you know, you know what our winters are like over here. You know, <laughs> still got to train. You know, back in the outdays, you can go to, you know, you got your cross trainers, you got your running machines. Back in the day, you know, you had to still do your old work as such. You know what I mean, you, there was no excuses. My coach Brian Hughes, he's one of them old time coaches. You know, though, I used to ring him up. I mean, some of the way we used to go running on moors, you know, Saddleworth moors, and we were talking hills like that. Yeah, 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 ten, yeah. Ten miles of the weekend. Now in the summer, it was all right in the summer. In the winter, you know, when it, it was snowing, it was raining. There was no, like I say, there was no options to cross trainers or running machines. We had to go, we still had to go out there and do the running. Because like I say, Brian was quite old school, you know, an old school coach and all that. But anyway, like I say, uh, October, you know, we're coming into the, the winter and I've got the defence against Hashi and Sharifi. It was a successful defence, great fight. Ended up in hospital for three days after that fight due to a yes. chest infection. Yeah, chest infection, instant exhaustion. Um, yeah, just because it was basically what the doctor said is, is that you, you, you run down. He said, you're doing too much. Uh, you know, and I, like I say, I'm thinking of 25, 26 years of age, I could go on forever. He said, this is, a, this is your body telling that you need to calm down, you know, slow it down. I said, I advise you to have a good six to eight months rest. But like I say, that was in the October. I'm contracted to fight uh, Sugarboy Malinga in the December. Yes. Uh, for another because man- they had another mandatory defence. Yes. So like, talking like six weeks. Uh, so I was in the hospital for three days. Six weeks later, or eight weeks, or whatever it was, I'm back making another defence. Now looking back, I've just done too much, Karen. Karen, yeah. I mean, that's I'm winning the world title and four defences. That was five world title fights in twelve months. Yes. Twelve months. Or thereabouts. Now you don't get fighters doing that these days. You might get to, you know, lucky if you get two defenses in one year. Like you know what I mean? Twice a year, don't they? Really? Alan Smith, you know, he's won the WBC, the, the Super Series. He won that. I think he's made one defense. Is it of the of the of, of this world title? Is Who are we talking about? Alan Smith. Yes, he's he's made one defense. I think he's had a, an extended layoff of some sort, but he's made one defense. I think. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not knocking him, like I say, great fighter. Yeah. But that goes to show, you know, they're making one or two defences a year. I made, I had five world titles in one year. So obviously, looking back, I'd over, you know, I'd overdone it. I'd overtrained because in the in the fight against Sugarboy Malinga, uh, you know, I was struck down again with a chest infection, uh, bad flu. And as a 26 year old, I didn't want to pull out. I thought, I can't pull out. I'm going to let everybody down. 
you know, and that's where your manager and your coach got I mean, look, I'm not blaming anyone, but, you know, I'm the fighter. I don't want to come out. I, mean, you know, I was on death's door, to be honest. Yeah. I was coughing up green. I mean, I don't want to sound disgusting, but I was coughing up green. Now, when it's green, that's infection. And that's when the doctor said, like, you know, you should be on antibiotics, laying up in bed, not like, like running up on the moors. But I just carried on with it. And like I say, I was sick as a dog coming into that fight. Yes, yes, but, yes. I mean, yeah, you know, we look back on it now and, it, you know, it, it, to be honest, it was probably one of the, the worst decisions of my life, uh, biggest mistakes in my life. I, I do have regrets about not pulling out of that fight. But listen, you know, a lot of pressure on me at the time. I mean, I'm a young 26-year-old. All I want to do is fight. You know, really, yeah. my coach or my manager should be saying, you know, well, let's pull you out of this one. We can postpone it for another two months. Wait till you're fit and healthy, and then you fight again. Now, who knows? Maybe, I mean, I can't say I wouldn't have lost, but I wouldn't have been a lot fit. I mean, I was fighting at like 40, 50% fitness, you know. And I didn't make excuses at the time. I didn't want to tell my story at the time that I was uh, suffering with a chest infection and flu and whatnot, because then, oh, you're just making excuses. I can say it now. Do you know what I mean? I can say it now. I've no reason to, to, to make excuses or lie or whatever. But yeah, I mean, that, like you say, Kevin, that was one of the biggest mistakes in my life, not pulling out of that fight at the time, you know, being, due to being, you know, to being, uh, to being ill, you know, I went, I went ahead with it and I ended up losing my world title and I've gone from there, back down to there, you know, and uh, unfortunately I learned the hard way. Well, I mean, you've gone to the world five times, really, in, in 12 months, which is almost, as you say, almost unheard of these days. And it's not just, just the, the, the fights themselves, but of course, it's the, it's the camps as well, isn't it? And you're, you're doing that all the time. So it's only inevitable, I suppose, that the body's going to break down, you know? Exactly, exactly Kieran, you're right there, because it's not just the fight that takes it out of you. It's the training. You're training for two, three months, build yeah. up to that. So after that fight, after each fight, I might get a week off, two weeks if I was lucky. And then I was back in the gym. Yeah. Back into training, and that was and so. It's not just the fight that takes it out; of it. it's the training. You know, and you, you've got to train. You've got to keep your fitness up and all that. So that was like constant hard training. What twelve round? Well, you you always look to, to to train more than the twelve rounds. That's you know that's five times I had to do that in one year. You know, and it's a hell of a lot when you look back. When Absolutely. You, look back at it. Absolutely. you know, especially when you so you know, and the proof is in the pudding. You know. Them first three defensives were great fights, but you could see it was just slats taking taking that little bit more out of me every time I fought. And yeah. unfortunately, uh, Malinga, you know, I was fighting on, I was just fighting on instinct to be honest. You yeah, know, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I should yeah. have pulled out. Coach should have pulled me out, but they didn't do it. I went ahead with the fighting. The rest is history, unfortunately. You then took that time. You took ten months off, which which you you needed, um, I suppose yourself, but. Um, the 13th of February, 1999. What a fight that was. An all-British unification fight for, I think, the WBO title with uh, Joe Calzaghe in, uh, in Newcastle. What do you Yeah, correct. I mean, they, I, mean, I mean, there you go. I mean, if anybody, everybody who's seen that fight, I mean, I'm not blowing me on trumpet, but what a great... You know, it was a great fight. You know, two Absolutely. great fighters. Yeah. Similar sort of age. Two world champions. We had great rivalry at the time. You know, and we met on even in Newcastle. Um, and as you could see from that fight, I was back to myself. You know, that the, the Robin Reed and then three successful defences. Um, that Robin Reed was back. Yes. You know, you could see I was, I, was, I was refreshed. And they even say on the commentary, 
you know, they can see, oh, you know, he looks like a fresh Robbie Reed. It's good to see him back, blah, blah, blah. And that showed on my performance against Joe Calzaghe. Because, like, you know, as we know, I lost on a split decision. But a lot of people thought, you know, that had won the fight. And at the time, I'll be honest, David, at the time, um, you know, I thought it was close at the time. I thought it was close. But I thought I'd just nicked it. I know he had a good start. But if you watch the fight, he wasn't landing a hell of a lot. He was throwing a lot, but he wasn't landing a lot in them early rounds. You know, I was working on the defence. And that was part of the plan. And then Brian McCoe said, when I tell you, then you start letting the right hand go because the right hand's the big shot for the southpaw. So I think it was the end of the fourth, fifth round, Brian says to me, right, start letting the big right hand go now, Rob. And it did. And as you could see, I was having some great success with that right hand. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Exposed him to. I've been. I've been. I'll be honest, Gary. I've been surprised since that fight. He's how how other fighters have been exposed. He was. I found him so easy to like. Now this is no disrespect to, to Joe Calzaghe. I mean, I'm not, I know it was a good fighter, but to catch him as often as I did with that right hand, I, I was surprised myself. But I, yeah. I, I I showed that he was vulnerable to it, and I was surprised that any fight after that. That other fighters didn't take advantage of it as, yeah. as much as I did. Now, I don't know if that's testament to me being such a great fighter. I've <laughs> 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 never seen him caught with as many punches in all my life, in all his career. You know, and I'm not just saying that just because it was me, but I mean, being honest, have you ever seen him caught as often? No, absolutely not. And the stats back it up as well, actually. Although stats don't normally mean a lot. But honestly, anybody looking at the footage of the fight sees how, how often he was caught. What he also showed and what you also showed were, were two great chins as well. I mean, the, the pair of you to the end of the 12, 12 rounds, absolutely fantastic uh, way. Were you ever offered a rematch? Well, no, I'll, I'll tell the truth. I was offered the rematch by, by Frank, yeah. That was my evening, Frank, for the rematch. I'm on the phone every other week. Come on, Frank, get me the rematch. You know, because because it was such a great fight, and I thought I could. You know, I knew, went into the first fight. I thought I could beat this guy. I sparred him on a, on a on a GB squad. I sparred Joe Calzaghe. The only factors apart because of that rivalry as amateurs, yeah. Yeah. When we had one GB squad, you know, to the Olympics, they let us spar once. I think it was Ian Irwin who was the national coach at the time, and he was a great coach here. And he said, "Right, Reed, he said, I'll let you do this one round. Don't take the Mickey, meaning don't try and like batter it." He said, "Like hold your own." He said, but don't, I, you know, I don't want a war. So anyway, we had a spa. And we didn't have a war, but I got him in the spa, yeah? I'm not, I'm not saying I played him. Now, you ask Ian if he's still about what, what happened in that spa, and he'll tell you the truth of what happened. I I, I, I had took the advantage on uh, Not took the advantage, sorry. I, um, I came on top of the spa. Yes. It wasn't a war, but I, you know, I was the one who was the eye catcher in the spa. That was the only time we'd ever met before the fight, and like I said, the rivalry had been building up nicely and all the rest of it. And I genuinely didn't like him at the time. He didn't like me, and I didn't like him. You know, I thought he was, he was, he was being classed better than what he actually was because I'm going off the spa we had, and I just thought, you know, he's good, but he's not that good. So anyway, we fought, and like I say, at the time, I thought it was close, but I thought I just nicked it. Now, it wasn't until I got home, watched the fight, and I thought, I thought it was a little bit more convincingly there than, than, than what they did me, do you know what I mean? But I thought, fair enough, do you know what I mean? There was a couple of close-called rounds in there. 
I thought, worst case scenario, they should have, should have given it a draw, but they didn't, you know. And like I say, I chased, I chased the rematch straight after that fight. I eventually get a meeting with Frank Warren about six months later. He sits me down and he said, I've got an offer you can't refuse. So I'm thinking happy days, like, you know, I'm going to be set for life here after this fight and all the rest of it. And I'm that embarrassed to tell you what I got, what he offered me. But he did it on, I, looking back on it now, I think he was embarrassed. Because the first fight, I did get a lot of money. I took the fight for pennies, to be honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, thought I would be a multimillionaire after that fight. It was nowhere near, nowhere near came for the fight. Because I thought I could beat the guy. Yeah. I thought yeah. I could beat the guy. And Warren said to me, if you win this, he said, you're in the money. So anyway, fought him to beat me. You know, I came close to beat uh, Closer than what I think Frank Warren actually thought I'd come to. I didn't. I thought Frank. I think Frank Warren thought he'd walk all over me. He, he just knocked seven bells out of me. You know, he'd give me a good boxing lesson, Joe Calzai, and it didn't happen. I think quite, uh, Frank Warren was quite taken back by that. But anyway, like I say, when I went to meet him for the for the for the rematch, and he offered me buttons again, and I think, I mean, I can't. I let you know allegedly because I'm not going to get into any trouble for what I said, but I think he done it. He offered me such a, 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 it was a bad, it was a bad offer, do you know what I mean? He offered me 15 grand more than I got for the first fight, which is nothing in, you know, in world title figures and all. 15 grand more than the first lot, and I didn't get much, much more in the first fight. And I was just that shocked at the offer, and I went, are you having a laugh? And he went, he said, you talking to him? And I said, oh, Frank, I said, you, you said to me, you know, after the first fight, you would be an offer that I couldn't refuse. I said, that's not I can't refuse. He said, I oh, forget it, then it doesn't matter. He said, I'll get someone else to do it. So I think he did it on purpose, because I think he, he, I don't think Frank Warren thought I was going to give him such a good fight, you see. And I think he panicked a bit and thought, you know, he might need, he might take this in the second one, so let's stay away from the rematch. That's just my outlook on it. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. nowadays, that would have made for a great rematch, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm not saying Ben Eubanks, but not far off. Do you know what I mean? That could have been built up to be a, a cracking rematch. Well, it, it certainly never could have done. done. Managed correctly and promoted correctly, it certainly could have done. Because, I mean, it got the interest first time around. There was the, the I suppose, the underlying uh, beef there, if that's what you want to call it. I think it would have done very, very well on Sky and, and sold, you know, very well at the time. Um, especially an all-British unification. All British fight again uh, would have been would have been superb, but um, it was never to be, of course. And then um, you went, uh, so you had another chance at the age of thirty-two. We're going to skip to this one, but you had another chance at the age of thirty-two, and this was for the WBA and the IBF world titles against a German guy called Sven Opka. Uh, <laughs> please describe this fight for us. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's typical, typical of my career again, isn't it? I've got no, you know, nobody else would fight better. Now, if you look, Joe Kazdagi would go over to fight him. Nobody, nobody would go over to Germany to fight, uh, to, to fight Svenocker. Yeah, now, now the argument being, yeah, because you're going to get ripped off and blah, blah, blah. But that's, that, that's my boxer's mentality. My mentality is forget all that. It doesn't matter who it is, where it is, I can beat this guy. And I'm going to do such a convincing job that it doesn't matter where it is or whatever. You're still giving me the decision. So anyway, like I can say, nobody else wanted to touch uh, Sven Ocker. So I guess the phone call off. Jeff Harden. Jeff Harden was managing okay. me at the time. Harden, sorry. Jess Harden was managing me at the time. Right, I'm going to fight against Sven Ocker. Do you want me? And I was like, yeah, I get up every day of the week. He said, yeah, but it's in Germany. 
I said, you know what it's like over there? I said, don't care, Jess. I said, I'll, I'll be doing, I said, I'll beat it. He said, yeah, but you're going to have to knock him out to get a draw over there. I said, listen, I said, boxing's boxing. I don't care. I don't care. If I do a convincing enough job, yeah, they, they can't, they, they have to give, they'll have to give it me, even if it's on points. So that's the mentality I've got. So I went over there, and as we know, I've done a number on the guy, you know, boxed his head off nearly every night. It's hard to give Sven Ocker one round, never mind the 12, or give him the fight. And, um, yeah, they've given the decision, you know, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's gone down as one of the worst rip-offs of all time, do you know what I mean? Or the worst robbers of all time. You know, not that you get yeah, I mean, it was just a blatant rip-off. I mean, you can't even look at the fight and think, oh, yeah, that's why Sven Ocker won. He didn't do anything in the fight to win the fight. You know, and I'll be honest, Kieran, after that, I sort of lost a little bit of love for the sport. Because it's happened to me against Joe Calzaghe for the WBO, which yeah. I could understand, you know, the close fight, so I could live with that one. You know, but to happen to me for, I mean, two major titles as well, the WBA and the IBF, Yeah. Uh, that, you know, you know, from going that put me into legendary status winning that um winning them two titles. And then who knows, you know, Joe Calzaghe couldn't have avoided me then, you know, because his excuse was you've got nothing to bring to the table anymore, you know, because I didn't have a world title. Right? That was his excuse, yeah, not to have the rematch. But at the end of the day, you know, he was just looking to get out of having the rematch. So if I'd have won the WBA and the IBF from Sven Ocker, Joe Calzaghe, because it would have been a big unification fight then, wouldn't it? Would Absolutely. Be a Joe yeah, a lot to bring to the table then, most certainly. So it wasn't just the fact that I lost the fight against Fenocca, it also messed up any plans with the rematch with yeah. Joe Calzaghe for, the, for, the, uh, for all the belts on the line. And like, we would have been looking big for that one. But, so, you know, it wasn't just losing the fight. It, 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 it was a knock-on effect that, like, not saying it spoiled my career, but it didn't help towards the... Uh, help towards my career. No, well, I mean, in round six, you, you, it, it looked a very legitimate knockdown of Sven Ocker. And then later on in the round, as I recall, um, there was holding, etc. And then the ref took a point off you, didn't he? In, in round I six. Mean, it was bad. I mean, if anybody, you know, anybody out there has not seen the fight, you know, have a nosy at the fight, have a look at the fight, uh, see what you think. Because, um, like I say, you know, I'm just being honest, you know, at the end of the day, I won nearly every round. And like you said, you touched on there, Kieran. I had a knock, I had a, I won't if you watch the first six rounds, it's hard to give any of the six rounds, right? I've got the scorecard up there on the wall in, in a frame, yeah? <laughs> right, okay. It's unbelievable. If you look at the scoring, how they have scored it is unbelievable. It's obviously somebody's been, you know, allegedly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because there's no way you could score any of them first five or six rounds to spend Ocker. And I think one of the judges has given the first three rounds. And they were <laughs> three rounds. You know, you look at the fight. You, I don't think he even throws a punch in the first three rounds. <laughs> one or two. I've given the first three, four rounds. So, yeah, you know, you're on about, you know, I was off to a bad start as it was. Like you say, dropped him in the sixth round with the right hand. Because he's gone down. Referee's gone, no knockdown. And when he practically picked him up, you know, it's an <laughs> Practically picked him up, brushed him down. Are you all right? Are you all right, mate? Are you sure? Yeah, you take plenty of time now. Do you know what I mean? It was one of them. And then he <laughs> says, right, obviously I've steamed into him, caught him with a couple of shots. Referee stepped in again, stop. 
and he was running out of reasons to stop it. And he, he actually flaps and he looks like he goes uh, uh, low blow. He, he was just making things up as he went along, and then he took a point off me, you know, for no reason, just yeah. to make sure if the judges had given me that knockdown, it would have leveled it up. You know, and the, the bad thing about it was, Kieran, it wasn't even disguised how bad they were ripping me off. It was just blatant. You know I mean, I actually made a comment at the end of the fight saying, uh, you know, uh, at least Dick Turpin used to wear the mask when he ripped me off. <laughs> <laughs> or didn't, do you know what I mean? They just blatantly sat there and watched while, uh, while my career was uh, demolished, basically. Well, you're a qualified ref now, aren't you? So um, that probably puts it into even greater uh, clarity, um, you know, how, how that should have gone as well. But uh, we're going to uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit. But um, one, one, well, you had a few notable fights, but one that certainly stood out was the one with Carl Froch. Now, you, of course, were 36 years old at the time. Um, did you feel anywhere near your best coming into the Carl Froch fight? Or really, you know, did you know that, you know, the best days were behind you at that point? Not because of confidence in I was just like I talk about it now, Katie, because my career is, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 50 now and uh, my career is well, you know, long gone there. So I could talk about problems that I had, you know, in, in my career without looking like I'm making excuses. I mean, Carl Frotch knows, you know, I've spoken not with not saying my best mates or anything. I've spoken to Carl, you know, a few times since the fight. He's very complimentary. You know, he knew that that wasn't the, the he even said, I think he, he's got a few interviews since the fight himself and said, that, you know, if I'd have got the Robbie Reed five years prior to that, it might have been a different, you know, it might have been a different outcome. You know, and I respect him for that. And he did say, you know, fair place to him at the age of 36 with two bad elbows. I was suffering with their hyperextension of both elbows going into that fight. I had to have cortisone injected in, cortisone injected in one of them. I couldn't have a cortisone injection in the other one because you know, you're limited to how much you can have. Um, yeah, so I was going into that fight with two bad elbow injuries. Also at 36, you know, um, I took the thing, I only got five weeks, six weeks notice for the fight. Um, I was getting messed about by managers again, I won't mention any names, but I was getting messed about by managers again, you know, and uh, went into the fight and I did all right considering, you know, for the first few rounds I did all right. Um, you know, but just time caught up with the injuries. Like you say, you're not 100, when you're not you're not 100 fit. As in, I don't mean physically. I mean you know injury wise. You know, but that plays on your mental side of things as well. Yeah. When you know, you try and blank it out. If you know that you're suffering going into that fight, I'm no, I'm thinking, you know, I can't let that right hand go as freely as I want because my elbows are happen. So it was a case of. Holding back, holding back, holding back, let me go when I felt, you know, when I felt a bit comfortable to let it go. And hoping that I didn't jar it, you know, because that's what I was doing. I was throwing shots, jarring the elbow, and that was it. It was the tendons gone. Um, so, like you say, you know, you've got that on your mind. You know, I've got, I'm fighting against a younger, fresher fighter, Carl yes. Frost. He's on young. You know, I'm sort of coming to the end of my career. Uh, but listen, I give it a best shot as I could at the time. You know, and, uh, you know, third play to Carl Froch, he, he said, you know, to this day, he's never been hit as hard as he was by me in that fight. You know, and that's quite a compliment for Carl Froch, considering all the fighters that he's been in with, Lucian Butte, uh, the Super Six, you know, Andre Ward, all them... Uh, or Tesla. Big, yeah, and all them big-name fighters. And he still says to this day, I was the hardest puncher that, uh, that he'd been in with, or the hardest puncher that he'd ever took. 
And do you know something? Berkeley. It's round four or five. Anyone watching the footage of the fight in round four or five? Um, I mean, you really stood there and traded with him. Um, was that a case really of knowing that maybe you only had a couple of rounds left? I mean, did, were you looking to be pulled out on that stage or was that a compassionate decision that, that Brian took against your wishes almost? I mean, I'm, I'm a fighter, uh, Kieran. And, you know, you, as most fighters, you want to be taken out there on your shield. Do you know what I mean? And I think I got dropped in the fourth, I think it was. It was a good yeah. shot. My head was clear, but my legs wobbled a little bit. Uh, so, I, I mean, he didn't drop me. I went down and took the count. You know, that was my decision to take the count. My legs to, you know, the game themselves. Um, but, like I said, you're up against it here in Europe. You know you've got injuries. You know, you know you've just been dropped. Now, in normal circumstances, you'd be able to buy the time and you know, like survive for a couple of rounds, then maybe come back into the fight after getting dropped. But it was like I know my time's running out. You know, I know my elbow to get worse the longer the fight goes on. You know, and it was I was just up against it from the work go. I gave it the best shot. You know, at the time. And that's all I could do at the time. I didn't want to, you know, I was begging with Brian, you know, don't pull me out, Brian, like, you know what I mean? Because I thought, I'm, you know, I'm a decent pro. I've had a great career. Don't pull me out the first time of trouble. Do you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, unfortunately, that was the case. And uh, Brian pulled me out and that was that. Absolutely. But uh, a really good and, and, and certainly... You tested him massively in the five rounds that you were in there. You could see, anyone can see that. But um, over 40 victories then, you come to the end of your career, over 40 victories, um, I think 29, by the way, of knockout, if I'm uh, not much mistaken. Um, what are you up to now, Robin? What are you up to now? Now, I mean, uh, I still, you know, do a bit of coaching at the gym, uh, Collier's from Boston. Plus, uh, I've got my own business now, uh, Robin Healthcare, we're doing a bit uh, anti-aging cream. People yes. Tell me how long will be in. I'm not bad for 50. I mean, we're also doing, I mean, what's annoying me about this coronavirus, apart from a lot of things with this coronavirus and uh, COVID-19, you know, people, have, like, have, you know, going into petrol stations, face masks for like £2.50, hand sanitizers, like double, trebled in price. Yeah. Um, but we're dealing with, what we're looking to do with, with, with Robin Reed Elfker is like, you know, because... We've got, it's depressing being locked away. You know, people are starting to get depressed and, and with whatnot with what's going on with the lockdown situation. And how I'm thinking, we've got to start looking towards the lock, when they start easing off on the lockdown, you know, when they start reopening gyms. Obviously, they're going to have to be putting, you know, um, safety precautions into place, yeah. face masks, uh, hand sanitizers, obviously the social distancing. So that's what we're working on at the minute. We try to... You know, we're, we're doing them at virtually cost. We're doing the face masks and the hand sanitizers, not just like the, the, the ones you buy in the shop. This is like, you know, hospital grade because my business partner works in the pharmaceutical trade. Yes. So that's what we want to, you know, and we understand as well, with gyms being closed, they're not being making money. So we want to try and, you know, do a, you know we're, we're doing really cheap deals on like face masks and sanitizers and things like that. We're virtually doing it at cost because we want people to, you know, to be able to get back into the, the gyms yes. and, well, not just for keeping fit, but for mental health as well. You know, being busy, keeping. So we're working towards, like, you know, putting uh, a place for people going back to the gyms and things like that. So that's what we're doing with Robert Reed Healthcare. Also, I'm working with a school now. We've got a Safe Start. It's called. It's a, a pupil referral unit in Ashton. Um, we're looking at you know, kids who have been excluded. That sort of thing. Uh, you know, we're a school looking after them sort of kids because these kids, they're coming from troubled backgrounds, you know, similar to myself as a kid, you know, and 
they're getting a bit leery or whatever in class and they're getting excluded for that now that's it once they're excluded from school you know they've got exams and all that so they're excluded from all that we take them on at our school you know because there is hope for them you know a lot of people our schools and that are writing these kids off and listen everybody deserves another chance and a lot of these kids aren't as bad as what you know what people think they are you know they get a bit lippy with teachers and things like that and they're getting excluded but you know it's just keeping them on the straight and narrow um you know when i take them to the boxing gym three or four times a week and that's where boxing you know helps in that uh, situation yes. as well it's that it's that we've got they're doing it you know they're looking to the gym it gets it, it gives them a chance to express themselves or get rid of that anger or that excess energy that they've got um, we're doing really well with that, and that's like safe start. Probably. Uh, but we've only been up and running for a year, uh, yeah. but that's going to be really scary. You know, we're looking to expand and get bigger. Uh, but that, you know, I get a lot of job satisfaction out of that. You know, it's like kids that was in similar situations to me when I was like back in my day. You know, given I mean, I'm not saying I was a bad kid at school, but, like with the bullying and being brought up in foster care and all the rest of it. Um, you know, a lot of these kids are in those situations, and it's just giving them another opportunity. Or, trying to keep them on the straight and narrow, keep them on the straight path, you know, and hopefully they can uh, go on to lead better lives for themselves. No, absolutely. And the best thing about it, you're helping real lives and you can see the results at the end of it as well. Um, you can see the progression, I'm sure. So, um, no, it's absolutely fantastic what's being done uh, in that company and also with, with the healthcare as well. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure going through your boxing career and what you're doing now. It's been absolutely superb. So thank you for appearing on the uh, Purple Sex Podcast. Just before we go, um, we have guests on this show. Uh, do any of our guests want to ask any questions directly to Robin while we're here? <laughs> we've, we've been met with a wall of silence here. <laughs> okay, well, either the sound's gone or there's no questions coming. But, um, Robin, what I can say is it's been an absolute pleasure to do this with you. We will do some live shows as soon as this lockdown is over all around the country, etc. Robin Reed, thank you very much for appearing on the Purple Sector podcast today. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Kieran. Look forward to speaking to you soon, my mate. Lovely, Robin. Thank you. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. See you later, mate. Bye-bye.